0: Blackbird episode number seven. My name is James and today I am thrilled to be joined by a real life agorist. Lily Forrester is well known for being the widow of a man who was murdered by some say the drug cartels in Mexico, Uh, others aren't so sure. Um, You've heard her on the Thaddeus Russell unregistered podcast and you might also know her from some of her business ventures of which there have been many. I think this is a great chat. It's pretty freewheeling. Um, I think you will be enthralled by Lily's story and inspired by some of her activities in the gray market and even in, you know, quote unquote legitimate white markets. So with that, here is my interview with Lily Forrester. All right, Lily, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me. It's good to be here
0: yeah, for sure. So I first heard about you, um, actually, it was after a pretty traumatic time in your life, uh, and I'll let you kind of tell the story. but um I was at an event with Thad Russell, and he kind of told us what had been going on down in uh, down in Mexico, and he broke into tears. and that was the very first time I ever heard your story. and you've kind of uh, you've kind of put yourself back together and even written a book about it um in in the years that have ensued since then so i'd love to talk about that why don't you kind of give just a brief introduction or a long-winded introduction whatever we've got an hour uh just sort of about you and who you are and uh how kind of people have come to know you
1: well um nobody knew who i was at all until about five years ago which is when i moved to mexico Uh, i moved to mexico illegally i'm still here legally um running from cannabis crimes it was like all together it was in a corrupt area and they threw the book at me and all together it was like if if i was to get full full sentence for everything like 20 years just for weed no 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 victim to the crime so Mm. um i grew up with a really unconventional childhood and both of my parents were agorists and my mom was actively on the run for about seven years of my childhood so when I got arrested, it was not at all far-fetched for me to be like, okay, well, we're going to Mexico. Fuck, <laughs> fuck stick it around for the court date. I'm not spending another second in jail. If there's one thing that I have in common with my mom. It's that we hate jail. We hate being locked up. Sure. I, think that's, I think that's a human thing, though. Yeah,
0: that's reasonable.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but we came and we moved to Acapulco and we lived in Acapulco for three years. And then the murder happened, and there are a lot of things that led to the murder. Um,
0: can you t- can you tell us who the who was murdered?
1: It was John Galton, um, or as you all know him as, because Lily Forrester is my real name anyway. It's um it's the name that I chose when I went on the run because well I just figured if I was gonna blog about it I should probably at least change my name. Sure. Um, seems to have worked so far, <laughs> but he went by John Galton, which was a play on John Galt um and yeah he ended up getting killed in front of me and my best friend jason was shot and that was a whole whole ordeal um but yeah it was basically like i was i had to go into hiding for a long time after and the only thing that kept me from fucking basically from fucking killing myself was crafting and making things and that's basically what my book is about
0: that's pretty awesome uh and john was your husband right
1: Well, we were, I mean, it was one of those things where like, we never did a ceremony or anything, but you don't really get more married than going on the run to a different country together. (laughs) That makes sense. So
0: Uh, A lot of a lot of a lot of state jurisdictions would uh, would recognize that, I think. Um, What uh, what was it like being raised by agorists? So when you say they were agorists, do you mean that they engaged in black and gray market activity or do you mean they were actually philosophically like in the lineage? of? They they
1: engaged in the activity. Well, the thing is, like, my my they were philosophically there, but like because there's no Internet in their time, you know, they had no idea of the word agorism. But, like, when I explained it to my dad, he was just, like, well, that's just how I live. And it's, like, well, yeah, exactly. You know, like, my dad's been bitching about taxes for as long as I remembered. Like, so it's, you know, my mom's been bitching about fuck the police since I was, you know, that was one of the first things I was probably saying, knowing knowing my family, you know, like, I was trained to hide from cops and then know when a cop knocked at the door at five years old. So, like... I think had they had access to the internet and stuff, they would have taken on the title of agorists, but because of the times they were just outlaws. I think,
0: and I think that's way more common than people think like um, Rothbardian libertarianism, the the suit and tie libertarianism is pretty new and you, you kind of have to like, you have to, you have to read a lot of books and, and, and come up with a lot of different thoughts for that. Whereas with, with the Agora and agorism, it's just, it's just more of a lifestyle. Like you didn't need Sam Konkin to write a book on it.
1: well, that's the thing. Like um, something I learned recently that I didn't know about Konkin was he was before being uh, any like philosopher, political activist or what people see him as now, he was a scientist. He was a chemist by trade Mm. that was what he did so as far as he saw it and the way he talked to it with the people that were close with him is agorism is just science he's just observing how you know these sorts of transactions work in nature among humans and that's you know what he's going with and and like for me that's what made sense with agorism like i was reading rothbard and all that stuff and i could agree with what they were saying and i was like oh yeah man the world's fucked but like where was the solutions and then like when i found conkin and agorism i was like oh okay well here's the solution and it seems like the solution is what my parents have already been doing my entire life right
0: (laughs) yeah exactly that's a yeah i and and it's a benefit of agorism over sort of the political libertarianism too because you can just you can you you can just live free like you don't have to you don't have to have legislation to say that you're freer i mean it, it'd be nice but like you know i mean it's not like we're winning anything that's uh actually i've been i've been discussing here recently we're going to be posting this uh i'm not going to be posting this until after the new year um but uh yesterday uh, as of the day that we're recording Rand paul was giving a speech about how uh how are we going to pay for all of this, all this stimulus stuff? And I think, not unreasonably, some libertarians, you know, took to Twitter to criticize him and call him a loser because nobody cares how we're going to pay for stuff. Politics just doesn't matter anymore. Like, that you're 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 so stuck in the in the in the previous era that ended in the year 2020, probably, and maybe even long before, if that's what you're worrying about.
1: It's all a big charade, like looking into that, you know, like I, and I've, I've started to reconnect with some of the people that I went to high school with and they're all status, like none of them call themselves anarchists. But what I do find interesting is like, I challenged one that I've been close with and she's a, she's a Biden supporter. And I was like, well, what are you trying to like, what is it that you actually want Biden to accomplish? And the things that she was asking for, like, I couldn't really like say that they were that bad. And I told her that, and I was like, realistically, I just, you know, I would prefer not having to deal with taxes or any of that at all. And what she said surprised me, but I think it is kind of starting to become more popular. It's She's basically like, well, ideally, we would just have no government, but the majority of the people in this world are not ready for that. And that was, like, really surprising for me to hear from a Biden person, you know? But it was just like, the especially with the younger generation's public opinion is changing. You know, people like influencers online have more power than politicians do at this point. And that's been proven time and time again. It's kind of awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think that's a, that's sort of the era that we're seeing the end of and, and a transition from, um, from a, sort of politicianarchy where the where the where the government the politicians and bureaucrats are really really the ones in power uh, it's transitioning to i would say more of a corporatocracy. where do you think I, that leads where 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 you know influencers and non-political actors wh- whether that be whether that be you know a tiktok star or jeff bezos um where are we going with them kind just- of in charge
1: It just kind of leads, like, it depends on, like, what those people are talking about. Thankfully, there are a lot of really, like, intelligent influencers out there talking about things in intelligent ways. So, like, I think it's just going to convince more people to opt out of the system. You know, like, I'm essentially, I call myself, like, mini-influencer, and I've already influenced so many people to drop out of the system without even trying you know i'm not out there like hey you guys need to wake up and stuff yet i'm waking people up and it it feels pretty cool to do that just by living you know and i think we're gonna see more people just opting out oh wait i can just live you know like two of the well one of the chapters in my book is specifically talking about agorism because it's you know trying to expose people like, hey, you like to make things? You want to make money for them? Well, you probably want to keep all that money that you make for them, right? You know, you probably don't want to have to deal with regulations, right? And I think it's just like things like that that are going to get us into where agorism is just commonplace, you know? The gray market and black market is already huge. Like, it won't be long before it's bigger than... Whatever the legitimate market is.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think that, uh, um, I think the more regulated the quote unquote white market or legitimate market or whatever, uh, gets, the more not only just naturally people want to rebel against that, but it becomes necessary to do so to survive.
1: Yeah. Like one, one benign example is, um, right now Etsy is banning there's like okay so there's this business for autistic people like making stim toys things to you know stimulate the body and mind and stuff and one of the really popular things because autistic people like to chew on themselves is they have these chew toys they're like necklaces that are like food safe silicone that you chew and you chew until they fall apart and you buy new ones well all of the vendors are you know advertising that they're for 18 plus yet these people keep buying these things giving them to their two-year-olds and their kid chokes and they start suing these people because of it. So now there's a whole bunch of black market, like stim toy vendors who are trying to sell their chewy toys still for the people that want them. And it's just like, why do we have to go through this shit? You know, my friend just got her store taken down because of it and it's like, why, why?
0: So besides besides selling on Etsy, what does opting out or separating yourself from the system look like to you?
1: It's it look it's a lot of things. For one, it's like refusing to work in the typical job paradigm, you know? So like the only thing, you know, I don't only do the crafting stuff. I freelance for most of my money and I freelance for, you know, only organizations that I support. So if it's an organization that I'm not really that fond of or don't really have any passion for, I, I can't work for them just because it's like, you know, what's the point, you know, why am I going to support something that down the line could, you know, cause problems for people or something or just yeah. be a waste of time, you know, like, why would I do that? Absolutely. And I think it's just, it takes people looking at their lives and finding ways to be more free, you know, if they're getting paid for stuff they do online, start demanding to get paid in crypto, start offering a discount to get paid in crypto, you know, you just have to find ways to prioritize opting out of the lifestyle, you know, opting out of the rad race into this lifestyle, I should say.
0: What kind of freelancing do you do?
1: Um, I call myself like a Jill of all trades. And my strength is the fact that like people can come to me and be like, here, I need this in four hours and I'll get it back to them. So that's my strength. But I do everything from transcription to um, podcast editing now a little bit of video editing, graphic design, writing, and it, it I pretty much do anything that people hire me to do. You That's know? awesome. I mean, how did
0: so. and how do people find you or do you find them?
1: It's been a process because like something that I had to deal with after the murder I realized is for the three years before my Facebook was primarily controlled by my ex. And anybody that knows him and was close to him knows that he was extremely confrontational. He was always fighting with people. The problem with that is it does put a sour taste in people's mouth when they see your name. So for a long time, I was begging for jobs and I wasn't really getting much of anything, I think because of the stigma of what people thought I was before. And then as I started or come out of my shell more as myself and I was posting more relatable content. I I have no interest in fighting with people on the internet and insulting people and stuff. And once people realize that, that that's the true me, I basically, it, I get jobs organically. So sometimes I'll message people and, you know, but sometimes like Float reached out to me and they're like, hey, we heard you do this. Do you want to work with us? So I'm going to start working with them soon. And um agoras nexus last year i did a podcast with them around this time i just did an interview like this and he contacted me later that night and was like do you want to write for us and now i've been i'm nah, to the point where i'm basically their web developer because i've been fixing so many problems with the site
0: oh that's so. awesome does a. Yeah. um So what about uh, like food sufficiency? I know you, I know you do a lot of gardening, but also uh, you're, you're a proponent of carnivore diet, right? Or something like that.
1: Okay. So the carnivore diet, it's something that I love because it makes me feel better, but it's also something I have a love hate relationship with it. And I think Jordan Peterson has had the same thing because like, I saw a tweet from him once that's like, how's the carnivore diet going? Great. But I'm tired of it. And it's been me dealing with that currently I'm on the holidays, so I'm not eating that way, but I'm already not feeling right from eating tortillas and stuff again. Yeah.
0: So I, I I'm I keto. Most of it, I'm keto most of the time. And like we had tacos last night, I think because of the holidays and like, I just kind of always feel woozy and headachy a little bit.
1: Yeah. It's like, it's, it's a hangover and it's just like, okay, I'm going to tolerate this because it's the holidays, but damn it. This is not cool. Um, yeah, that's that's weird. I'm I'm getting to the point where I want to see a food allergy doctor because I'm realizing that the majority of my problems are related in histamine issues, and mm-hmm. I get lightheaded and shit when I eat the wrong things. So it's like, uh, I should probably stop guessing and see what specifically is triggering it if I can.
0: Are you still living in Mexico? Yep. How is it? Is it pretty easy to find healthcare providers like that down there?
1: Um. Yeah, healthcare is great down here. Like I've had. And it's interesting because a lot of people say, like, oh, it's great in the cities, but you don't want to be out in the country. Well, like, I almost died from botulism poisoning, and it was some country-ass hospital, 45 minutes from my house, that saved my life. So, I mean, you can get, like, the life-saving care that everybody needs is available, even in tiny, small-town Mexico. Um, How'd
0: How'd you end up with botulism?
1: Okay, so that was... I I, I got the idea from some people to try mushroom, um, microdosing psilocybin. So I was like, okay, I'm going to contact the only hip like hippie I know that probably has in Mexico. He's like, he claims to be a shaman and stuff. So I was like, Hey, can you help me find some mushrooms? And he goes, Hey, you can get this jar mushrooms preserved in honey, 250 pesos. And I was like, perfect. And he's like, yeah, it's really strong. And two, I was like, okay, I just want a microdose. And when I saw him, he's like telling me how much for the full dose. And I'm like, I'm not going to do a full do- dose, how much for a microdose. And I never did do a full dose. And if I would have, I'd, I'd be dead. Like, you know, I was just taking very tiny amounts of it and I almost died. Like I would be dead. And yeah, it was just badly preserved. Like badly preserved and it took me a minute because like I woke up at like four in the morning and I just rolled over like I usually do but the whole world started spinning and it wouldn't stop and I got up into the bathroom and I was just like the whole world just kept spinning and spinning and spinning and I was like fuck I have to go to the hospital and on the way to the hospital I was sitting there in the car just like feeling like I was dying and I told my boyfriend I was like google botulism and he goes what do you mean I'm like just google it and he read all the symptoms and i'm like i have botulism you have to tell the doctor i have botulism and he's like what do you mean and i was like it's botulism
0: <laughs> i know it's it?
1: like it was it was everything it was like the the dizziness um i had this problem it was kind of too much information but i had this problem where it was like constant urination so bad i had to pee in the street on the way to the hospital like I was falling over, I was really sick, I had a whole bunch of digestive issues, like horrible headache, and I just felt like I was dying, and I was, and I was just like, it was scary, like I couldn't breathe right, it was it was scary, there was all sorts of like symptoms, and they just all coalesced together, and it was just like, wow. This had to have been terrifying to die of back in the middle ages. Like, Holy shit.
0: So did that put you off psychedelics or have you done others since then?
1: I'm, I'm terrified at this point. Like I want to microdose so bad because I've heard so many great things about it for creativity and productivity, but like, I'm so afraid of sources that I'm, I don't know if I ever will. I'm like, I've, Someone decided I'm done with strong psychedelic experiences after the Bufo trip that I had in February. It was worth it, but, like, I wasn't ready for that trip, and I remember, like, as it felt like I was soaring through space while throwing up, I was just, like, I am too autistic for this. This is too much, because, like, the problem with the full psychedelic experience is it kind of knocks you off your rocker and it overwhelms you and it overstimulates you. And for me, it can be hard to get like the messages and that, you know, especially yeah. if you do it more than once in a short, you know, period. Like it just it just like totally wrecks me, leaves me overwhelmed and fucks my body for a couple of days. And then I'm left to sort out my head for a couple of months afterwards. And like it's just it's too much. It's too much for me at this point, and I and I've had enough experiences. I've had many experiences on LSD. I've had a few experiences on shrooms, and that experience on bufo. And at this point, I think I'm just I'm good.
0: <laughs> As a complete noob, I've never heard of bufo. What is that?
1: It's a frog poison. It's a it's like a form of DMT, but it's um it's not combo. Um, most people it doesn't make throw up. The reason I threw up is because they give you this like. They essentially blow tobacco up your nose and i'm extremely tobacco sensitive and that's why i threw up Mm, nobody else was throwing up but um yeah it's it's like it's like iowa the way it was described to me is like ayahuasca but in 30 minutes and happy And that it'll fill you with love and gratitude and that it's a great experience. And I saw like a video of Macy, who I should have remembered is experienced with the stuff do it. And she was just laughing, and smiling. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll give that a try. That sounds fun. And I was just like, at first, like I like shot up to space, essentially started throwing up. And I was just thinking about how angry I was at life. And then I'd like thought of the fact, like, this is too much. I, this is too much for me. Like I'm too autistic for this. And then like, I started to come down and then like, as you come down, you feel good again. And it was pleasurable. And like, just talking to my friend who I call my crypto dad, who paid for me to do it. I was like, Oh, okay. I get it now. But it was, it was, it was hard. And it left me really emotionally raw. Um, I was like, just instinctually pissed off. And then like, it made it. The interesting thing about Bufo is I don't regret it because he got me out of an abusive work situation before Anarchapulco. I, I was working with this guy. I won't mention his name because it's not important, but long story short is he has mental issues and drug abuse issues and he was just acting a fool. Um, and I was tired of it and I decided to leave the job. And I essentially r- rage quit the job a couple days after Bufo because he started with his, manipulative narcissistic bullshit again and I was just like I wasn't having it. I rage quit the job. I flee Acapulco. I went home and the coronavirus started. And I heard Acapulco was a fucking police state during coronavirus. And where I'm living really isn't like they made you wear masks into the one grocery store for like a week and then they gave up.
0: <laughs> like
1: nobody nobody here was masks.
0: That in and of itself makes me want to move to be honest. Um so yeah uh, what about this what about this abusive work situation was this another freelance gig or was it like a full-time thing or
1: it was it was one of those things where like I was desperate basically i was still dealing with the stigma and not getting mm. enough freelance work I hadn't proved myself to enough people as a freelancer and it was getting to the point where I just wasn't making anything I was barely surviving and sure. this is somebody who told me for like a year he He's a type of person who makes more really than he should. And he was like complaining about, um, well, he wanted to help me basically. He wanted to give me a job. And we had talked about doing this job where I was gonna sell a silver for him and online making a store and we started the job. But the thing is like, I didn't fully realize that he wasn't actually paying for me to do the job. What he was paying for it was for the companionship. And he wanted me to sit there with him until two in the morning drinking and smoking weed and talking about nothing. When what I was doing and what he never saw was I was waking up at seven in the morning, working till about two and then going off and doing things, you know, and then working for a few hours in the evening. So the way he saw it is I wasn't working because he didn't understand it. Cause he didn't wake up at all until I'm pretty sure he probably is still this way. doesn't wake up until three. So it was just, a situation where I overlooked a lot of red flags about his personality that I knew about. And I went and the situation wasn't what it was advertised because he told me he was going to get me a place to stay in Acapulco. What he meant was I was gonna stay in his spare room, which was hell. Um, that was the worst part about it. Cause when you'd go to bed, he he was so lonely. He just like open the door every couple minutes and talk to you and then he'd apologize and close the door. And then a couple minutes later, just come in and open the door and talk to you again, like, about random shit.
0: How annoying.
1: Yeah. <laughs> or, or, there was, or there was one time where, like I, like, I make dabs for myself and sometimes for friends. Like, I'll make them some, like, they buy the stuff and I make it for them not for money, just to help out friends. And I did that for him. I made him some dabs. He woke me up at three in the morning. I le- When I left, he was playing with the dabs cause they were pretty. So he was like treating them like Play-Doh. I'm like, okay, I'll let him have fun. I go to bed. I wake up at two in the morning to him screaming and crying. Not, not necessarily mad at me, but mad at himself because he had somehow lost his dabs in the three hours since I went to bed and was losing it. I searched the house for like an hour. I couldn't find them next morning. My boyfriend finds them. No joke in a case of beer in the fridge. And I was just like, what? Okay. <laughs> what? What? Uh, yeah. It was just like stupid shit like that. And then it became like, part of it was like, there was no clear expectations or deadlines, but he was acting like it wasn't getting done fast enough. Um, There was also, and he was also at several points impeding the process just by like not getting me things that I needed to do the job and stuff like that. So it was like a whole bunch of shit coalescing together. And then by the end of it, I was just fed up. It was like, Look, man, I'm not just here to hang out with you. I'm just here to work like And I left, and he tried to get me to come back to finish the job repeatedly. And I'm just—I decided that no, no money was worth dealing with that. You know, Mm -hmm. I was trying to get things done. Like, yes, I could have stayed and milked him for more money and shit, but I'm not that type of person. As soon as I realized he wasn't actually paying me to work, I was not interested.
0: Well, and that also helped you launch your freelancing stuff. Uh, like in well, yeah, earnest, it, 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 like, so. it,
1: it opened me up for so many different things where it's just like I'm so glad that I I went through that experience but like yeah it also taught me that I think I am just I think I'm ready to settle down as far as the psychedelics and things are concerned mm-hmm.
0: so as someone on the spectrum have you noticed uh other like very strong um, reactions to substances or has it really only just been that one time or
1: Well, I've noticed it every time I've done psychedelics. And I just thought that was part of it. It's supposed to be overwhelming. But, like, I started to notice, like, tripping with other people that, you know, like, when I trip on pretty much any amount of, like, LSD, MDMA specifically, as soon as the drug kicks in, I can't even sit up. It's that overwhelming physically. I just lay on the floor. And, like, there was one trip in in Oregon where we were physically active for a good part of it. And like, I just remember struggling so much and everybody else was just going with it. And I remember like, okay, but I, I didn't quite think about it, but it's like, it's the last year. And I didn't think about it really until I was on Bufo and then I was on Bufo and I just kept thinking I'm too autistic for this. Like, this is too much. Like I can't process all that's coming in. Like, um, and then I realized that was part of what made those experiences so tough for me, you know,
0: sure.
1: was how hard they are on the body, you know, like I would, I would end every acid trip with a fucking migraine from thinking too hard. Oh. Migraine so bad, I couldn't sleep. So it was like all of those experiences would leave me in that state of mind and state of body. And I was just like, I couldn't understand. I just thought that's how it was. But then I like saw other people faring better. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm just sensitive to these things right
0: that's that's fascinating and awful, and also just kind of a warning I think for everyone like I, i've I've never done psychedelics and I'm super interested in it um, but uh you know it seems like it's almost hit or miss um, whether you're gonna have a good or a bad experience and well, the
1: thing was the thing with psychedelics is, is you kind of have to surrender to the experience. And if you're not somebody that's okay with surrendering to something, you're not, you I'm don't not know what's fact. going to happen. It's, it's terrifying, but it is like, for me, it was useful in that. Cause like I needed it in some regards. I don't think I'd be out of my shell in the ways that I am. Had I not had my experiences with it. Um, the one thing I will say is if you ever do it, make sure, um, if you do LSD and MDMA specifically, those two make sure you buy drug tests beforehand to make sure that they are what you're buying. Um, mm. All of my experiences I've done that and I'm happy for, except for one experience. There's only one experience where I took drugs and I didn't test them beforehand and it was with MDMA in Mexico. And I'm pretty sure it was primarily meth. I've never done meth, but I'm pretty sure it was based off of the effects, but Every time, like, you know, like I've tested it and you can go into it knowing, okay, well, I don't know what to expect, but at least it is going to be what everybody else has been talking about for years and years and years. Because like when I started doing these things, there were a lot of other drugs that were putting people in the hospital and I wasn't into that. Yeah, I only wanted to get the experience that I was getting for it. It was overwhelming enough going through that experience. I couldn't imagine like having the experience of taking acid and it being something else you know i had a friend do that and he was saying he was seeing demons in the walls and shit and it's like no thanks i'm good on that
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh hospitals and jails that's probably places to stay away from um tell me tell me about your crypto dad who's that
1: okay so doug is um He's just He started as a friend. He's somebody I met in Anarchapulco 2016, and he was somebody who followed our stuff online, and he moved partially because of our stories. Um, He used to come up to our house a lot, and after the murder, he drove around with me for, like, four days trying to find my dogs. He went to, like, four or five different police stations. He was going into all these business, because I couldn't do it, but I was trying to get my dogs back, so he was trying to help me. And in in that process, we essentially became family. Because, like, right after the murder happened, the majority of people were too afraid to come anywhere near me. They were all being told to stay away from me because they were coming for me next and that, you know, that you don't want to be killed in the crossfire. But there were a select few people who weren't afraid of me. And Doug was one of them. And everybody was telling him, like, you need to stop hanging out with Lily. But he was taking we were going out on adventures and stuff, basically, to keep me distracted. But, and funny thing with the crypto dad is um, he had me do a Temez ceremony with him. And most people don't know this, but I got into a fight, a physical brawl with the police of Acapulco. About six weeks after the murder, on the, when I was going to meet him, I was walking to the Costera to meet him, and he was going to pick me up, and the cops apprehended me. And I just fought back. I had a full-on meltdown. I was screaming rape. I was hitting them. I was kicking them. I bit one of them because he grabbed my purse, which had money in it. I was I wasn't having it. And finally, they get tourist police. I was messaging Doug saying, hey, the police have me. Come get me. I'm here. I sent him like a pin and everything. And he was coming, and by the time he got to where I was... I had convinced all the cops to let me go. They were trying to question me. They wanted to know my witness statement because they knew that I had witnessed the murder and I couldn't give that to them because I don't have a passport. You know, you can't do it without legal identification. Hmm. So I wasn't going anywhere with them and I made that clear, but. And he was there. He picked me up from that. So he sees me walking away from a sea of like 30 cops by the end of it. And he's just like, what happened? I'm like, well, they tried to take me in, but I said, no, <laughs> I wasn't doing it. That's, so, pr-
0: that's probably for the best too. I mean, you could, you could probably be seen as a snitch if you're given a witness statement, right?
1: Well, yeah, that was a big part of it was like, and I made I tried to make that very clear because there are a lot of people that are like, Hey, do you want to go after these guys? And when um, John's mom came down, his mom and his nana came down to claim his body, and the police were like, do you want us to go after these people? And they were like, no, because we want her to remain safe. We don't care who killed him. It doesn't matter. We just want his body. And the cops are like, they're like, are you insane? And it's like, really, we don't care. Like, it doesn't matter who killed him. Like, what matters is that it happened
0: yeah catching him is not going to bring him back to life i mean it's
1: not going to help anything
0: and there's there's controversy as to as to who did it right
1: yeah it's one of those things where like even i will never truly know i have my theories um especially because i was living with him for so long but i think it was i think it was just a perfect storm of things rooted in the type of person he was in regards to other people Mm -hmm. so like when john first met people he was super charismatic. He drew them in, you know, he got them hooked. But when you got really close to him, like if you lived with him or were in business with him, he was ruthless is one good term. Um, yeah, he, he could be really fucking mean. And this, I was his partner. He was he was really hard to deal with. And I think he just pissed off the wrong people. At the wrong times, you know, like, I think the guy that I initially blamed it on, I think he was part of it. But I don't think he was all of it. You know, I think maybe even the cops might have coincided because John is very rude to the cops. The cops are in bed with cartel, you know. It's hard to say not only that, but we were growing weed openly. We had had a huge harvest, right? huge harvest right before that, like days before that I was trimming weed and we were jarring it up like half a pound or something of high quality weed. And we were selling, we weren't selling Coke and everything like they were saying, but we were definitely selling dabs and edibles specifically to the gringos. That's competing with markets. Like, and acapulco if you don't agree to pay for your like uh, extortion on your business and you're just a tortilla guy you get killed and i know this because one of my on um, friends his favorite tortilla guy was killed for refusing to pay extortion fee on a tortilla business
0: <laughs> let so alone a- let alone directly competing against them
1: Exactly. So there are a lot of people that say like, oh, as long as you don't get involved in illegal markets in Mexico, you will never be killed. But that's not true because I know taxi drivers who have been killed defending their vehicles. You know. So it, it really, you know, I know I know of guys that um, monarch butterfly sanctuary reservation workers. They have been killed preventing cartel from cutting down the trees that the monarchs sleep on. You know, so, like, you can get killed for all sorts of shit here. So, it's hard to really say, like, what happened there. What I will say is, in terms of the people who physically did it, it was just a small little group of guys trying to make names for themselves. They probably weren't older than 20. If they Mm -hmm. were, they didn't look it, you know. There were several of them. And they looked scared. They, like, that's the one thing I noticed is when I made eye contact with the one, he looked terrified.
0: So... Are there areas of Mexico that aren't uh, run by the cartels?
1: Okay, so that the, there really is no part of Mexico untouched by cartels, but there are safer parts of Mexico because where when you have problems, where you have problems is when cartels are at war. So, for example, a city, to, okay, Acapulco, for example, has about 12 to 15 cartels at war for you know, superiority at any one time in just one city. So that's why there's all the violence and bloodshed. And there's even more cartels trying to start. But then you go to a city like Morelia, it has some violence, but for the most part, crime in Morelia is really, really low. But Morelia is in control uh, by, I think, the Jalisco cartel. And the Jalisco cartel is currently sweeping across Mexico, some say funded by the government, I don't know, but um, they're sweeping across Mexico trying to take out all these smaller cartels, even in my area, where I'm living. When I first moved here over about a year and a half ago, there was one cartel, one real small cartel, local cartel that had been in the area for like 30 years or something. And that was it. About a year ago, there was this crazy firefight in the middle of the night with grenades and everything that lasted for more than an hour. It felt like I was living in a war movie. It was like half mile from my house that this happened. And that started the beginning of the war. Now there's three different cartels at war in my my area. I'm moving out of it partially for that reason. I've got a drug dealer down the street that won't stop selling drugs even though they keep saying they want to kill him i don't want to get shot because some dumbass doesn't want to stop selling drugs you know in the crossfire like i don't want to be there getting fucking tortillas and get shot at no fucking thank you
0: (laughs) yeah that seems um, that, that just sounds like something straight off of tv uh although i i live i live in the ghetto i'm sure it happens all around me and i just don't even know about it
1: well, like, yeah, I mean, in the ghetto after a while, you just kind of like... I mean, shit like this would happen. I remember we were walking down the street in Detroit when we lived there. And we were just walking. We were walking to our friend's house. We were going to teach them how to make dabs with our methods. So we had, like, this shopping cart literally with, filled with weed and butane because Detroit is the type of place where you can walk down the road with a shopping cart full of weed and butane and the stuff to make dabs without nobody saying anything. And we were just walking to our friend's and we hear a bunch of gunfire and we can and it's on the sh- street next to us and we can even feel the bullets whizzing past and all we could do was just fucking laugh about it and keep walking and hope for the best you know that's just life for some people and for a lot of mexico like yeah you know the, if if an area has any value whatsoever being avocados or lumber or guayabas or whatever like there's there's always somebody trying to extort it. That's something I've realized is unless you can make your money quietly in Mexico, you're getting extorted.
0: Mm.
1: It doesn't matter who you are and everybody. I've had so many people tell me to start a official restaurant. I won't do it because I don't want to deal with the extortion. I know I could do a restaurant and I know I could do a really fucking well at it being in Mexico and knowing what I know with food, but I'm not interested in dealing with it.
0: Yeah. Let's switch gears from the, from the violence to your, to your restaurant stuff, because that's super fascinating to me as someone who loves to cook. Um, How are you, how are you making money as sort of a freelance chef almost?
1: Okay. So that was more an echo than it was here, but there's two ways. The thing with Mexico is like, there's nothing saying that you can't have a restaurant in your house. So that's what I did in Acapulco. The reason we had that house on top of the mountain, we couldn't afford that house most of the time. The reason we had it was because we were doing the business out of it. people would come up just to see the view and have the food. Um, There's also very few regulations. There's also the fact that you can set up on the sidewalk anywhere and sell food and nobody will give you shit. I know because I've done it. So, like, it's more of a free-for-all. But you will have, like, in – it's not so much, like – definitely in Acapulco you'll get extorted but like it's not as bad in other cities but eventually you will have somebody come up to you and oh here I'm going to protect you a lot of times when they do that though they actually do protect and if you pay they'll they'll cover your ass like I have a friend who has a glass like not glass but like smoking stuff distribution business and he got extorted but the guy is reliable. So when he has somebody that tries to rob him, he calls the guy and the guy takes care of it. So it is, that's, that's kind of the interesting things like in the right areas and in the right situations, these things are like private security more than anything. Yeah. They do protect their investments.
0: So you said there was, there was two ways. So this restaurant you were running out of your house, was it just open to the public or was it like invite only?
1: Um, basic it could be open to the public but like it was hard to advertise um and i was basically trying to make more money off of americans than i would making feeding Mm -hmm. mexicans so it was basically like an experience so i would post various places hey i'm cooking this and it'll be at this time it will cost a minimum donation of this much money per plate you can pay more if you want we'll pick you up here. Cause we had to pick them up below and take them up. So we give them, and it was, that was part of the experience. You know, you'd ride up the hill in the back of the pickup truck, get to the top of the mountain and then get into this house with this incredible view. And then you'd, Oh, okay. And you'd eat your dinner. and You know, that was how we did it. Um, and yeah. And then the other way is doing it on the street. Like you can, you can buy a locale and stuff like that, but like, the the cheaper ways to do it are out of your house or on the street. And there are all different ways to do it. Like I have friends in La Paz that have tacos, have a taco truck and they do that and they do well at it, you know? So there's not really much regulations for that kind of stuff here. Mm-hmm. At most, like maybe you'll park in front of the wrong business and they'll be like, Hey, you're going to have to pay me this much if you want to park here every day. And it's generally not much. So it's a lot more privately done.
0: Awesome. Um, so, okay, let's talk about your book for the last, uh, the last few, uh, few minutes of the, sh- of the interview. Um, what's the, first of all, what's the name of your book?
1: Um, it's kind of long, but it's stitching my life back together. One woman's crafty journey through losing everything after a murder. I wanted to like make sure the murder thing was in there because of, I mean, it's a big part of it and well, I have to sell books somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But the uh, the idea came to me because, like, I've been making things since the murder happened to keep myself sane, and I've also been recording, like, what I've been making and how to make it, but I just never got around to – I intended to put these out as, like, individual patterns, so, like, $3 a pattern or something like that, because a lot of people do that. And then it got to the point where I realized I had about 25 patterns that I hadn't released – And I was also trying to think of other ways to monetize my content and get more passive income. And then it occurred to me, like, why don't I turn it into a memoir and make it like, because this is, I have people ask me all the time, like, how the hell did you make it through that? Like, how are you okay after this? And really, like, the only thing I can say is, like, when I felt like losing it, I picked up my crochet hook and my yarn and I just crocheted. It didn't matter what I was making as long as I was doing something with myself. And I found a lot of peace in it. And then like part of the cool thing about the book was in the process of writing the book, I started my craft business. So like that gave me even more, you know, I I replaced some of the patterns with better patterns because I was just making things for customers that were awesome. Mm -hmm. And so the book is not only like me getting over things, but it also like you can kind of follow the story of me starting the business and how one would even go about starting a craft business, especially when most of your customers are not in the country that you are in because like mexicans are not well technically one of my first bigger customers was the mexican but he's a mexican-american lives <laughs> in the united states so like the majority of mexicans can't afford what i would be charging and i don't charge more than what people on etsy charge for their stuff but like only americans will pay that but it's been cool to like show my process and how i got from just somebody who likes to make make things here and there to now I have like list of orders that I'm working through essentially at at every time and as soon as I cross a couple of orders off I get three more and that's it's a cool place to be in so my hope is that it will inspire people to even if they don't start crocheting or painting or whatever to start doing whatever it is that they're passionate about and finding ways to make money off of it
0: so uh, how's it laid out? I I find these um, there's it's sort of a trend in the cookbook industry anyway, where it's uh, <clears throat> there's anecdote, recipe, anecdote, recipe. Is that kind of how this is laid out, too, where it's anecdote pattern or.
1: Exactly. It's got like the beginning of it's an introduction, what to expect. And then it goes into like essentially a a crash course on how to crochet with step-by-step photos and then yeah it's it's here's how I came up with this pattern here's what I was going through you know here's why this is important like one of the things one of the patterns in it stitch my sorrows away afghan because I made a king-size afghan since the murder (laughs) happened and it was one of those things where like I was I was very aware because like there were times where I was sitting there not even able to see because I was crying crocheting through that thing so i was i was just very aware of you know when, when you look at an afghan you're just like oh yeah it's a lot of stitches but you don't understand you know what went through it so that's part of why i did it and also like for the afghan specifically there's like two or three pages of nothing but photos of photos i took through the process so you get the whole scope of like this was really like a year of my life here you know and it, it's interesting to talk about how I improvise on these things too. Mm-hmm. And like stuff like that. Like, so yeah, it's kind of like that. And some people like they say they hate that stuff, but I don't know. I love when I go and I see recipes and there's a story before it, and then you get the recipe. Like, I think that stuff is great. It, it, it helps you feel more connected to what you're making. It helps you actually yeah. want to make it, you know, somebody somebody's like, man, this is my grandma's recipe and oh, here's this great story. It makes you want to make it more. Me anyway.
0: <laughs> um, it, that's it's 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 really powerful. It seems like crafting can be even more like a spiritual experience than just a than just a way to make money for you.
1: Well, that's what it is for me. It's taught me patience. It's taught me more attention to detail because before I was the type of person to rush through a project just to get it done, not about how well it was done, but with crochet. I was able to hyper fixate on in a way to where I started to notice mistakes like perfect example is this pork hat that I'm making for my friend. I've done this pork hat three different times because it wasn't fitting right, but it's going to fit right now finally, because I put in that extra work but like I didn't have that attention to detail before I started crafting. And it also helps me follow through on things, because especially when you're in the middle of a king-sized Afghan, it feels like it's never going to end. And, like, a lot of people refer to that, like, that's what giving birth is like. It feels like it's never going to end. But, like, until it does, and then you're left with this beautiful thing, and that's exactly what it's like. So, like as somebody who's both autistic and has ADHD and has helped me learn the follow through that I need to follow through in other areas of my life. Also, it's taught me the valuable lesson that I didn't understand was like, when learning new things, I would get to a point to where I'd get stumped. And then I would give up and then I get give myself shit for moving on to something different crochet taught me that sometimes you need to just walk away from a project for three to five days and come back to it and you'll be able to do it again. So it helped me understand how my brain works better more. And yeah, (laughs) I think it was more profound in a lot of ways than any of the psychedelic experiences I've had, because I got more out of it with way less damage to the body and to the psyche temporarily. Cause like, yeah. And a good LSD trip will scramble you for about a week. In a good way, like, you're not, like, distressed, but you all, like, I, I was wit- very, very aware every time, like, man, this is definitely weakening me before it makes me stronger.
0: Mm. What a, Are there any other sort of spiritual practices that you're into?
1: Recently, I have gotten into, well, like, the one thing that I really got out of the bufo that I didn't mention earlier is it made me really question my whole, like, narrative of this is all there is, because I was... Mm-hmm. You know, like that there's nothing significant. There is, and also that combined with, um, I have a really close friend named Nova Ohm and she's a human design consultant. And human design, it kind of sounds really gimmicky, but she did a free reading for me and she's done a couple of other little things for me ever since and everything she has told me has been so spot on about myself. It's put me in tears a few times.
0: And it's not like um, it's not like vague. This is true about no, everything. Everybody. No, type stuff. No, like,
1: for, for example, one, one aspect of human design is it tells you your life path. It tells you your profile. Well, my life profile is um, my first 30 years of my life are extreme experimentation. I make a lot of mistakes, but I learn a lot, which is true. 30 to 50. I move into a hermit phase of production and reflection, which is pretty much what I've already been doing. And then from 50 on, I reemerged to the world as in crone phase as a role model. This is what I was already starting to feel my life going towards, but this is already apparently written out in the stars. And there's a whole bunch of other little things. that it's just too accurate and too specific. And like, I've managed to improve my life by like, one thing is like, supposedly I have what's called an open G center. And like, that means that I'm incredibly influenced by my environment around me so if I'm surrounded by toxic people I become toxic if I'm surrounded by you know artistic creative productive people that's what I am it's also in my environment itself like if I'm in an ugly sterile environment that has no personality I'm not going to be very creative but here in my little workshop where I have like You know, my tarot cards and my little Zen garden and my cactus and all of that stuff like that, you know, really influences my mind and puts me in a state of mind that I, you know, need to be in to be able to do things like write that book in three months. So I have been doing more delving into it. I've been I've been doing Celtic pagan traditions. I'm celebrating Yule for the first time this year. And, yeah, it's really only improved my life. Like I I come from it to it from a more practical standpoint like the witchcraft and stuff I do is for therapeutic purposes. It's it's crafty goal setting, you know. <laughs> I make witch spell bottles and yeah, like, you know, maybe there's some magic to them, but at the very least it's helping me really think about what I want in my life and how to get it and what I need to get it and that's what the value of those things are. So I'm delving in basically after 20 27 years of being a hardcore skeptic now i'm kind of like okay maybe there's something to spiritualism yeah (laughs) that
0: seemed that seems to be a trend right now um just among among like libertarians in general i suppose um and especially agorists uh like i interviewed vin armani recently and he thinks that we have entered a new age of magic and I i think so too I don't really know how to define magic. What would you say magic is?
1: Oh, that's easy for me. Magic is just... It's that thing that we can't describe that keeps the whole world going, you know? And, like, it's one of those things where, like, it's something that you can tap into if you just have that belief that there is something more out there. And I didn't necessarily realize that, but, like... The reason prayer works is because it doesn't matter who you pray to you could pray to yourself and i sometimes Mm. do pray to myself but i get the outcome that i want and i think it is a big part of manifestation you know like you do tap into that thing and if you're willing to open your eyes and look at it you do kind of start to get shit back from the universe you know and i think i think the more that i started to close myself off to these sorts of things kind of the mentally sicker that i got Um, so magic is just that thing that we can't describe that all these religions keep trying to personify. It's that thing that's out there that keeps the trees growing, even when we're trying to kill each other, you know, like because that cause that's one thing that like that was the closest I had to a religion before psychedelics was, you know, my mom had died and I was like, Man, my whole world is fucked up right now and it feels like it's ending. But if you look outside, the trees are still growing, life's still going on. So there must be something, you know, even if we don't understand what it is. So I've just proven to try or I've just chosen to try to have, like, respect for that which I don't understand. You know, now I'm paying attention to things like, like... Right before Halloween, I saw a black feather in my path. It's basically an omen. Then a whole bunch of stu- weird shit started to happen. I'm at this point. I'm not convinced that we are just done when we die. Like me and a lot of other people who didn't necessarily believe in this shit before, kind of think that John was. You know haunting us you know i kind of think my mom's still around my mom had died 10 years ago but i kind of you know it's one of those things where if you pay attention there's something more and psychedelics Mm -hmm. help with that because i was really too analytical and too logical to really understand it and and like the doses of psychedelics i had done before still kept me in that mind state because i was like okay oh i've done psychedelics and i'm still not spiritual But I had never done a God dose of psychedelics. I've never done more. Well, like, okay. So like a normal dose of acid, for example, like a strong dose of acid, is like a 300 micro, whatever is something. I think that's a, that's a fucking strong dose of acid. A God dose is 10 of those. Oh gosh. So, and it does really like, it does really do something to you. And I was essentially on a God dose of DMT that, that day I did the Bufo. And that's where all of like, there was no, that was the first drug I've ever done to where reality slipped away. And what I was seeing and feeling and experiencing was not on earth. It didn't feel like it anyway. Mm -hmm. And that was like, Oh, wow. Okay. So maybe, maybe it's not what I expected, you know? And then like that is combined with the with a near death experience, the the botulism experience, like that in its own way really made me made me second guess a lot of stuff. It's just been it's been a weird year in all of this, because I was a total skeptic at the beginning and now I'm ending it like sitting here talking about you know the stars and all how the age of Aquarius is upon us and stuff, but like I feel it, you know? <laughs> I And that's part of why I released my book yesterday. Yesterday was the 10 year anniversary of my mom's death, but it was also this great conjoining to the age of Aquarius supposed to start of a Renaissance. Well, if any time is the perfect time to release my book, it's then. (laughs) So yeah, it's been an interesting journey.
0: Cool. It has been. Uh, I've yeah. been following you for a few years and it really has been very interesting <laughs> to say the least. Um, all right, well, let's, let's leave it there. Where can people find you?
1: Um, find me on Facebook as Lily Forrester. My website is highly but I blog more often currently on the Homestead Guru and the Homestead Guru is where you can find my book. Um, I'll send you the links so you can share that stuff, both to the product and to the store itself. Okay. This is another book, and they're technically written by me too. Um, but that, yeah, that's the best way to find me in social media. I'm Lily Divine on Keybase for people on Keybase. That's growing in popularity. Also, Lily Divine at Lily Divine, all one word on Telegram. Feel free to reach out to me. I'm an open book. I will talk about anything. Awesome. You can't trigger me. <laughs>
0: Great. Thank you so much, Lily.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks again to Lily for joining me today. You can find the show notes for this episode wherever you're listening to it or at blackbird.substack.com. Don't forget to subscribe there with your email address. um, And if you would like to support the show financially, that's the place to do it. And I will see you on the next episode. Thanks again for joining me today. Until then, live free.